This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, Mr. Zimmer, and welcome back. Uh, it sure seems a little bit like a Pereira Groundhog Day to me. The immigration case was about the stop time rule, but Justice Neil Gorsuch quipped that it seemed more like the Supreme Court was going back in time to relive their prior 8-to-1 opinion in the case of Pereira v. Sessions. That case ended the government practice of sending notices to appear for deportation proceedings without the time and date of the hearing. But I would have thought the government might have uh, taken the hint from an eight-justice majority in Pereira that a notice of appeal means what it, what it seems to mean. The question now, in the case of an undocumented Guatemalan national, is whether the government can deliver that information in follow-up documents. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and & Knight, and the former head of the Office of Immigration Litigation at the Justice Department. Leon, tell us about this case and the stop-time rule at issue. So this case, Ms. Chavez versus the Attorney General, is a continuation of a different case that had existed earlier in the Trump administration called Pereira versus Sessions. And in both of those cases, the issue is that you have people who are foreign nationals who are trying to avoid deportation by getting a release called cancellation of removal, meaning it's a waiver of deportation. And the problem is that the eligibility for that waiver depends on how long the government takes to place you into deportation proceedings. And so if the government takes longer than 10 years to place you in deportation proceedings, you can get this waiver of deportation. But if the government takes less than 10 years, then you can't get the waiver. And when the government gives you a notice of deportation proceedings, that's what stops the clock on the 10 years. And so the issue is, does the notice have to be perfect in its form? Meaning, does it have to give you the date, time, and place of the hearing? Or can the notice be blank, and then they can update it later? So the first case, Pereira versus Sessions, said, look, if you don't get this information at all, it's over. The government doesn't get to say that the time stops. The time keeps ticking. And you get to say, look, the government waited more than 10 years to deport me so I can apply for this waiver. Here, the question is, if the government forgot to give you the information in the first place, but later sent you a different paper that wasn't the actual required notice, but the different paper gave you a hearing date, time, and place, did that cure the fact that the actual notice that is required in the statute didn't provide the information that was required in the statute. So the average person, maybe even the average lawyer, might ask, why can't the government get it together enough to give one notice with a time and date in the notice? Well, in fact, when I read the transcript, I think to myself, and perhaps I'm confessing too much, but, you know, I've gotten a speeding ticket or two in my day, and when you get a speeding ticket, that ticket actually has the date and time of the hearing on it. And they literally give it to you that second. And that's the hearing date. And so there's absolutely no reason why the government couldn't do the same thing and give you a notice with a date and time of your hearing on it. And in fact, when that was pressed to the government attorney, the government attorney simply said, well, it's a burdensome thing, but it's not impossible to do. 
Justice Gorsuch seemed a little annoyed that the case was even in front of the justices again. Well, this is a recurring theme in Supreme Court jurisprudence with regard to immigration, which is that a controversial issue will come before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, actually more often than people give it credit for, will decide the case in favor of the foreign national, as it did in the Pereira versus Sessions case. And what ICE, plus the Department of Homeland Security, but mainly ICE, will do is they will say, well, the Supreme Court couldn't have meant this, so we're going to try another way to accomplish the exact same thing that the Supreme Court told us we couldn't do, and let's see if we can get away with doing it this way. And that's what happened here, which is the Supreme Court said in Pereira versus Sessions, if you don't get a notice, then the time continues. The time stops only when you get a notice that has the time, date, and place of the immigration hearing. And so now ICE has said, well, they couldn't have meant that the actual notice to appear has to be the document. It could have been some other document that gave them the time, date, and place. And the whole argument in this case is that the statute require that the document that is given be the document that's referred to in the statute, which is the actual document called the notice to appear. Is the government's problem that... They don't know at the time they send the notice what the date will be for the hearing, and so they don't want to put just any old date in there? Well, there is a logistical problem, and the logistical problem, which is a genuine logistical problem, is as follows. That when you are apprehended on the southern border, if you are released from detention, you usually leave the southern border. You don't stay in El Paso or Brownsville or Laredo. You go to Chicago or Los Angeles or Miami or somewhere else. And so the point is, at that point, the foreign national is not in the venue of the immigration court. And so a change of venue needs to occur. But that problem isn't an obvious disaster that can't be solved. Because all that needs to happen is the hearing can still be placed for Brownsville or El Paso three months later from the date of apprehension. And then that gives everyone sufficient time to file a change of venue and to change the court to the court that the immigrant is actually settling in after they're released from detention. That's literally all that's required. And the fact that that hasn't been adopted after we've gone through an entire round of Supreme Court litigation seems a bit strange. But I think the larger concern that they have is there's a tranche of foreign nationals in between these cases that didn't get this notice. And what they really don't want is that tranche of foreign nationals to be able to have a claim that their notice was wrong. I don't think they have as much a problem moving forward, but what they want to still be able to do, at least the Trump administration, that won't be the case with Biden. Biden will go back, I'm sure, to the prosecutorial discretion guidelines of President Obama. But for the remainder of the Trump administration, as it were, they, they would want to be able to have this tranche of people who got improper notice still be subject to removal. So there were some hypotheticals, and Chief Justice Roberts, he said, well, suppose you get two separate documents mailed together in the same envelope. You know, is it really going to come down to taking the original notice and stapling on the next notice? I mean, it seems like it's gone too far. 
Right. I mean, Justice Roberts was trying to get at the point that you cannot be that if you've been given the information of the time, date, and place of the hearing, that that's always not adequate just because it's not on the actual form itself called the notice to appear. But I think Justice Kagan persuaded her colleagues that, look, whether you like it or not, you're the folks who are the quote-unquote read the text of the statute folks. And the text of the statute says, A, quote, notice to appear. And as, the, as indicated in Section 1229, and then it actually lays out what has to be in the notice to appear in Section 1229. And so they might say, well, Congress wrote an absurd statute. But if you're from the textualist camp who says, hey, whatever Congress writes, that's what we have to enforce. This is a very tough case for you because you may want to side in favor of the government and give it the flexibility it needs to remove people when it's provided the information that people are worried about whether it was provided or not. But at the end of the day, it's not what the statute says. And so if you're going to take this textualism car out for a spin, you have to actually take it out for a spin. You can't say, well, now I don't want to use this anymore. Just explain why Congress wanted it to be in one notice and, you know, the confusion factor for immigrants. I think that Justice Sonia Sotomayor harped on this a little bit. Right. The, the prior to 1996, which is when this statute was amended, they had multiple notices because, again, the technology, you've got to remember, prior to 1996, who knew where anybody was or there was, you know, we barely had the Internet in 1996. And so we weren't able to keep track of how we would do hearings. And so people had these multiple notices. And in every case, basically, you had a foreign national who didn't show up to court who said, I didn't get that second notice where you mailed it to me and you said that the date was going to be on March 12, 1994. I didn't get it. So what do you want me to do? That's why I didn't show up. And so what they didn't want is these multiple rounds of litigation on whether you got that notice or not. And so what they tried to do is say, look, there has to be a notice. And if the notice doesn't have these things in it, by time, date, and place of the hearing, it's not a notice that's adequate to put you in immigration removal proceedings. So now which way do you think the court is going to go? Is there any indication? My guess is that there will be this annoyance that ultimately fuels the court to say, look, we're not very excited about the prospect of you telling us that you're going to take every loophole in our decision and try to relitigate it. And so we're going to say that, yes, you have to give the notice that's assigned in the document. I, I think the plaintiffs or the foreign nationals, so to speak, has the better end of this case. The other interesting thing that could happen, and it will just depend on the timing of this, is that a Biden administration, as it were, could issue a supplemental memorandum saying we've changed our mind on this case. And, you know, we now take the position that this is in, this is indeed improper notice. I, I don't know that that will happen. I, I, I'm just guessing it could happen. And if that happened, that could certainly throw a wrinkle in this in this in these proceedings. Does this happen often? I mean, are there often times where, you know, immigrants say, wait a second, I didn't get the right notification? How big a problem is this? Well, so what will happen is, if you're an immigration lawyer, 
and you have a client who has just been picked up by ICE or they had a, what's called an annual check-in, and now ICE decided in this annual check-in that this is the time they're actually going to try to effectuate the removal, then one of the main defenses you look at is to see, well, let me check your removal notice to see if the time, date, and place was on this. Because if it wasn't, then you can come in and argue, as long as the person now has U.S. citizen children, that they are eligible for a waiver from removal. And so this is common for, I would say, some, you know, tens of thousands of people, tranche of people who were not given an adequate notice that actually had the time, date, and place on the notice to appear. It's, it's kind of a it's kind of a common claim that you would see for a batch of people who came in in the early 2000s. I was just wondering why the court even took this case. What did the court below rule? The cases are split around the country, and there's two layers of what the court below ruled. And what that means is this. First, the case had to go through a body that was an administrative body called the Board of Immigration Appeals. And the Board of Immigration Appeals ruled that any piece of paper that you get that gives you the date and time and place of the hearing is sufficient to stop the clock in terms of when you were given this notice. And so the Sixth Circuit agreed with the Board of Immigration Appeals. And the government actually made an argument in this case that that Board of Immigration Appeals decision should be given deference under the Chevron Doctrine, which... The government knows Justice Gorsuch hates and Justice Kavanaugh hates and now Justice Coney Barrett hates. And so, you know, Justice Gorsuch said that was kind of a brave argument for the government to try to make that argument under Chevron. But nevertheless, the point is they had ruled against the foreign national and said any notice is sufficient. But there are other circuits who had split and said that's not the case and that you actually, like the Third Circuit had said, you actually need to provide the document that is called the notice to appear, and that notice to appear has to be the document that has the date, time, and place of the hearing. Tell us about the first things that Joe Biden is going to do regarding immigration. Are these cases that the Trump administration is pressing, are some of them just going to die? Well, there's there's so much we can talk about, June. We can almost do a series, if you want, about different things. Just give but me one big say- thing. Yes, but I will just say, if you look at what can be done the first day, the very first day without needing to go through the regulatory process or any memos or anything, would be the revocation of the immigration bans that were placed on people based on different ethnic and other country reasons. That's easy to do. You just literally revoke the memo. You don't have to go through notice and comment. You don't need some formal agency, anything. You can just revoke those. Once we get a little deeper in it, then we might have a memo uh, restoring DACA to its original banner or perhaps expanding it, although that's going to be fraught with a lot of peril. And I'd love to talk to you some other time about maybe using something else called temporary protected status, which is more statutorily firm than DACA. But nevertheless, you know, the DACA issue will need to be resolved. And then a lot of these COVID-related bans will need to be looked at. But I don't expect the COVID-related bans to be looked at immediately. I do expect the ethnic-related bans to be looked at immediately. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. 
President Trump has refused to accept results showing that Joe Biden has won the presidential election. And the Trump campaign and Republican supporters have sued in at least five battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. The campaign filed another lawsuit in Michigan, this time in federal court, seeking to stop the state's top election official from certifying Biden's win. Two prior lawsuits contesting the Michigan election results have already been rejected by judges. The Trump campaign filed a similar lawsuit in Pennsylvania, which the Secretary of State moved to dismiss, arguing that Trump's lawyers failed to present a case. The Trump campaign also demanded a recount in Georgia, and its Secretary of State said Georgia would begin a county-by-county hand audit of ballots in the presidential race that would be completed by November 20th. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson, who has been following all the lawsuits. Eric, does the strategy of the Trump campaign now seem to be focused on blocking or slowing down some battleground states from certifying their votes in time for the December 9th safe harbor deadline for naming electors? Well, that certainly seems to be the aim of the lawsuit that was filed in Michigan and a few days before that in Pennsylvania. Both suits seek to stop the secretaries of state in those states from certifying the election results. And clearly, I mean, they have said openly that this is part of the strategy to reverse the outcome of the election. So they seem convinced that one way or the other, they can also prevail in these cases and win those states. Election experts and legal experts say that seems extremely far-fetched. You know, even if they were able to succeed in one of the cases, they need to succeed in several And it just seems like an incredible long shot, which, you know, begs the question, why are they going to so much trouble in these cases? But, you know, it does seem to be part of a pretty solid strategy that they're working on nationwide. Two prior lawsuits contesting the Michigan election results have already been rejected by judges. What are the allegations in the latest suit in Michigan? There have been previous lawsuits over the ballot counting procedures that were in state courts uh, in both Pennsylvania and Michigan. Those cases failed. So these new ones are filed in in federal court. They both broadly claim that the ballot counting procedures were irregular and fraudulent, that observers were not allowed to properly witness the ballot counting, and that witnesses for the campaign and other voters have signed affidavits saying that they saw things that were suspicious and things like that. And they want to have these ballots that were counted in this process thrown out, hundreds of thousands, regardless of how exactly they were counted, whether they're valid voters. It doesn't matter. They say any of the ballots that are counted in these particular counties that did it wrong, they should all be thrown out. Are these the same basic allegations that they've been alleging before in Michigan? It sounds the same. Well, the difference here, I mean, it, it, it is the same, but... The difference here is that, of course, it's in federal court, and now they have um, affidavits or sworn affidavits signed by people who say that they saw um, some various shenanigans taking place in the ballot counting process. Some of these are handwritten affidavits that are photocopied and attached to the complaint, um, alleging things that, you know, they that saying that they saw things that were suspicious or improper. For example, some briefcases or boxes in one of these affidavits, she, a woman said that she saw some uh, shrink wrap. Um, boxes by a window and she thought it was suspicious and someone at one point told her to go move away from them. And so for her, that seemed sufficient enough to file an affidavit in this case. I lost track of the number of lawsuits in, in Pennsylvania. What's the latest? 
the latest is the federal court case that the Trump campaign filed a few nights ago. Um, it is uh, alleging much the same as what we just said in Michigan, that there were improprieties uh, in various counties, um, and especially in the two uh, big counties where they claim that their um, observers were kept too far away. Um, and in those two counties, about they're trying to have about 600,000 mail-in ballots and absentee ballots tossed out based on the claim that they didn't think that the state properly followed the procedures for allowing observers access. Of course, the state completely rejects this, says that observers from both parties were present the entire time. Um, they plan on, uh, you know, proving that in court, I'm sure. Uh, and they, they say this is uh, a lot of a lot of sour grapes and false information flying around. But it really the big case now is that federal court case. And of course, there's also the Supreme Court case um, in which uh, the Republicans want to have all mail-in ballots that were um, arrived in the state between in the three days after the election during that extended period, as long as the vote, the ballots are postmarked by November 3rd. Um, that they can be counted if they arrive three days after that. And of course, they're going to argue at the Supreme Court to have those thrown out. The federal judge has set a hearing in the Pennsylvania case? That's right. On Tuesday, on, on November 17th, uh, the judge in uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, has set an oral argument um, in what is going to be the state's motion to dismiss the Trump campaign suit. That hasn't been filed yet, but it, it's supposed to be filed as soon as tomorrow. Um, then there will uh, perhaps be a motion for an injunction against the state that the Trump campaign will have a chance to file. And there's going to be oral arguments on both of these um, on, on November 17th. Well, in Georgia, they're already doing a recount. So I guess no lawsuit was necessary there. The- right. They had a press call in which uh, Republican officials uh, said that they expect the recount to result in the state going to President Trump. Well, let's talk about observers There have been observers, as you've written, for at least 100 years. But even if there's a problem with observers, how likely is it that a court is going to throw out the ballots that they were supposed to be watching? Right. We should be very clear that there has never been any precedent for that. And I I spoke with legal experts, uh, multiple legal experts who, who said that. Um, outright that uh, no court has, you know, taken a, a huge batch of validly cast ballots and decided that because there was an issue with the observers that they were going to throw them out. And that's one of the main reasons that people are, you know, the people that we've spoken to for these uh, stories are saying that these lawsuits have such a small chance, of, such a slim chance of, of uh, working. Eric, one of Trump's cases ended with a whimper in Nevada. Tell us about that. This was a case that was filed in Nevada over the ballot, um, the, the poll watching, the ballot obser- observation procedures uh, that Nevada put in place uh, because of the pandemic for social distancing and things like that. And the Trump campaign sued before the election to complain that they, they, was, they were being kept too far away uh, to watch the counting of the ballots. Um, very similar allegations to what we're seeing in Pennsylvania and Michigan now. Um, that case was thrown out in state court. Um, and the Trump campaign appealed. Uh, but on no- November 4th, they reached a settlement with uh, the election, top election official in Clark County, the home of Las Vegas, the biggest population center in Nevada, and, and agreed to let uh, the campaign's observers get a little bit closer. And that was sufficient. And as they dropped their appeal. The Trump campaign filed a motion to voluntarily dismiss its appeal. And that was granted by the court. 
So the same type of allegations that you saw that you're seeing now, um, they sort of backed away from. And I guess uh, one of the main reasons just might be that Nevada isn't quite as important as, as the other states. That also happened in Pennsylvania, I believe, during one of the early suits about letting the observers get Correct. closer to the vote count. They reached an agreement. Now, also, and this question sort of changes with the idea that they're going after you know so many states and so many uh, recounts and lawsuits. But as you look at it, could these lawsuits change the tallies enough to make a difference to go from Biden to Trump? Right. Well, my colleagues have reported that if you if you look at the various um, amounts of ballots that are being challenged in each of the cases uh, and, and, and just sort of add them up, that the math just isn't there to make a difference. Um, and that is one of the another one of the reasons that, that folks are comfortable saying that this this legal strategy isn't going to result in a Trump victory in court. <laughs> The first date that counts is the safe harbor date. That's December 9th. Let's talk about just why it's important that the states start certifying the results, that there are a range of deadlines in place. Right. Uh, that is correct. And they differ for each of these states. There's about six states, um, you know, the, the swing states that are being argued over here. And, uh, for example... Uh, Pennsylvania has to certify uh, its results on November 23rd, the same day as Michigan. Uh, so really, these these lawsuits are, really just have about a, a week and a half left before um, they need to to be resolved in order for those states to um, to certify. Um, and then uh, the um, electoral the, sorry the electoral college, electoral college meets on December 14th. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eric, and for following all these cases with us. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Doug Emhoff, vice president-elect Kamala Harris's husband, plans to leave his role as a partner at the law firm of DLA Piper. A campaign spokesperson said that Emhoff will wind down his work and sever all ties with the firm before Harris and president-elect Joe Biden are sworn in on January 20th. Emhoff has been on a leave of absence from the firm since August when Biden named Harris as his running mate. There are ethical reasons why Emhoff decided to sever his ties with the law firm. And Bloomberg Law team leader for the business of law, Chris Opfer, is here to tell us about them. So, Chris, first tell us about Emhoff's career. So, Emhoff is a commercial and entertainment litigator who's been working uh, primarily for some of the largest law firms in the country over the last three decades. He's got a long history of litigating actually in court and also advising companies. He does a little bit of everything on the commercial side. Some of the major companies that he's represented include Walmart and uh, Merck, the pharmaceuticals company. But primarily and, and especially in the last 10 years or so, he's really seem to have shifted his focus to media and entertainment uh, types of cases representing smaller indie film houses, um, advertisement agencies, other media companies in uh, intellectual property, copyright, um, and other types of disputes. So, you know, two of the ones that, that jump out that, that folks might be familiar with or at least, um, you know, have some reference to are, uh, he was involved in a $45 million lawsuit that had to do with the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Uh, if you recall, um, 
the Chihuahua was uh, a main uh, central part of uh, Taco Bell's advertising platform, and they they were um, the company was in a, a copyright dispute over that, and, and so Emhoff represented um, the advertising agency that came up with the uh, Chihuahua uh, commercials and some of that litigation. He also uh, was involved in in some um, uh, multi-million dollar litigation over. Uh, the viral uh, YouTube video of the New York City subway uh, pizza rat, if you recall that <laughs> one. Um, so those, those are among his more notable cases recently. He's a partner now at the at the firm of D.L. Piper, pulling in about $2.8 million last year. Are there any kinds of rules in place, ethical rules, for VPs and their spouses as far as careers? So here, as in many of these ethical quandaries that we see in Washington, the, the issue and the potential problem for Emhoff is the appearance of a conflict rather than an actual violation of federal ethics laws related to any work that he may or may not do um, after Inauguration Day. So first of all, the federal um, ethics laws, the, the main one in particular uh, that really limits what folks can and cannot do, including spouses, uh, doesn't apply to the president and vice president. And so uh, although in the past, um, many presidents and VPs have at least paid lip service to the idea that they're going to abide by those uh, laws, uh, certainly under the Trump administration, uh, that's sort of has been thrown out the window um, with all kinds of criticisms with respect to both the president's um, commercial activities and those of his family members slash White House advisors. At the second level, there are uh, state rules with respect to um, the state bars that put limits on conflicts of interest. And there are a number of ways around that. And some of those came up when Emhoff and, and Harris were both in California when they married Harris, of course, was the California attorney general, the top lawyer in the state. And so there are things that you can do to avoid direct conflicts of interest. And that's really what the rules boil down to are these direct where, for example, hypothetically speaking, Harris as AG would participate in a matter in which the outcome of that matter had a direct financial interest, whether that's because Emhoff was himself on the other side or because the firm was on the other side and therefore the, the outcome of the case could impact his financial interest as a partner in the firm. The firm Venable that, that Emhoff was at at the time told me that they avoided that by just number one not having Emhoff participate in, in anything that, that could even come close to crossing paths with the AG but number two having the firm itself largely sit out a lot of those cases. We did not hear back from the AG to get their um, sort of side of how they handled those things. But we also didn't find any um, evidence or examples of any cases in which Harris said, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out just because of the, the, the actual conflict or the, the potential appearance of one uh, with her husband's firm. Even if the firm didn't take those cases, there's still, as you mentioned, the perception and a perception might be that certain companies are going to D.L. Piper because of the connection to the vice president. Absolutely. And so in addition to D.L.A. Piper just being this massive law firm 
representing uh, companies around the world, they also have a huge lobbying shop that does an active practice of lobbying at the federal level, both for domestic clients that run a wide range of corporate interests, as well as some foreign clients that include uh, foreign governments like the government of Afghanistan. And so while MHOC himself is not a lobbyist and, and does not represent any of those clients and has not lobbied on their behalf, he has a financial interest as a partner because he's sharing in the profits from the firm. And so while that may not violate the letter of the law when it comes to the, the ethics rules, certainly raises a perception problem. That's Chris Opfer, Bloomberg Law team leader for the business of law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.